Hello, it's Alex. Alex's procrastination station. Alex has been having some mic issues. He hopes they work okay now. It works okay now. I'm going to talk about robots and living forever and all sorts of things. Let's live in the future, not the present. The present is rubbish. Right. Hello, everyone. Hello, three people. And hello, especially to my special guest, uh, Dr. K. Sidebottom, who is going to be chatting to us just after half past eight. Um, after I've done my intro ramble, which is all about the things that have been distracting me um, this week. Uh, to be honest with you, everything has been distracting me this week. My attention span has been absolutely shocking. Um, and I tweeted, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and I've been rubbish on Twitter recently actually i've barely spoken to anyone about anything i pop up occasionally to self-promote which makes me feel bad about myself like really does and then i kind of go away again and just bury my head in the sand and i think what's happened with me is that when my to-do list is a reasonable to-do list i i can turn into this productivity monster and i can kind of hyper focus and hyper focus and i have you know i've basically hacked my life to um in recompense for all of the terrible attention um, problems I seem to have. But my side, my, my um, to-do list has got a bit mad recently. And as a result, I've just gone into a deep, deep state of denial. So procrastination is my best friend at the moment. I really want to spend a lot of time not doing the things I'm supposed to do. But the weird thing is, is that it's not come with the same levels of shame or guilt, or, you know, unmitigated fear um, than it normally does. Um, I don't really know why that is. Um, I mean, I've been doing a lot better recently. Like, I've been feeling a lot more clear-headed. Um, I suppose one of the things I'm doing is I'm thinking about my, and I hate this word, and you'll know, long-time listeners of the show, you'll know my absolute hatred for anything well-being, because I think well-being is a lie that's been invented to make teachers feel like they're responsible for all of the bad things that happen to them. Whereas in reality, what needs fixing, as I discussed with uh, neuro teachers um, a couple of weeks ago, um, the system needs to change. Um, it's an institutional problem, and but the institution doesn't want to admit that it wants needs to change. So it's much, much better to have baking and, I don't know, colour in a mug and mental health ambassadors and all the rest of it and like i'm not saying that those things are bad on their own although baking is terrible uh, nobody really likes it it's like cats no one really likes them either and the feuding's mutual as you know with a cat you know so um but you you know with well-being the problem is is that it doesn't matter what we do as teachers to manage our own well-being ultimately you know it's like telling me that I'm responsible for all of the green initiatives in the UK and I've got to keep my TV off standby and I've got to turn all my lights off. But 
no one else is going to do it. You know, no, the government, there's no green initiatives, say. Things have got to happen, essentially. We should be baking cats, mental health. Well, Ahern's on one today. It's always nice to see Peter Ahern with his own sort of off-kilter brand of, well, Peterness, to be quite honest. Baking cats. Now, you see, you've upset Lucy now, and this is what I wanted to avoid. I don't want people fighting in the chat, all right? But it's lovely to see everybody um, in the chat. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, a few things. I'm going to talk about a bit of a, uh, I say a journey. Let's talk about what's been distracting me in particular. And what's been distracting me, I suppose, is is I've been really trying to learn about new things, and it's going to tie in, I hope it's going to tie in to, to what Kay's going to talk about. The, the plan that it is that it's going in that direction, but I am the king of tangents. And so it might not go in that direction. But no matter what happens in the next 20 minutes, um, me and Kay Saibom are totally going to talk about post-humanism. We're going to be talking about the future of education. We're going to talk about, you know, do we need a radical overhaul of the very fabric of our educational system but before i got there i've been um and readers of my blog and you know masochistic followers of my twitter feed will know that i'm really obsessed with cyborgs and this is um tabitha mcintosh's fault mostly although i've always found them really interesting like my favorite type of sci-fi is the kind of sci-fi that involves robots especially robots becoming sentient i'm really you know robots that pass the turing test you know i really enjoyed ex machina for example um spike jones's her and um, that sort of thing really fascinated by um, artificial intelligence and it it's born out of um, my problems with sleep. I just would love to have a microchip in my head that meant I didn't have to sleep. Um, it would make life so much easier. Imagine all the reading I could do, you know, stupid brain, getting tired, being limited. And so transhumanism, yes, Miss Sorcher, sign you up for that. And this is this is why I started reading a book, basically. And I really recommend this so far. I'm, I mean, I'm spot. 100 pages in at the moment. Um, it's by Mark O'Connell, um, the Irish literary critic and writer, and it's called To Be a Machine. Came out a few years ago. Um, and I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, and it's all about um, Mark O'Connell finding out about transhumanism and transhumanism. And one of the reasons I bring it up is because it's very different to posthumanism. I suppose it shares a little bit of DNA, although Kay will will set us all right later on on that. But it, what what transhumanism is is it's almost anger at um, the natural body and Mother Nature for giving us such limited flesh. Um, and transhumanists want to um, transcend the weakness of their rubbish physical bodies and basically become cyborg now. There is some overlap because this kind of ties us into uh, Donna Haraway's cyborg theory, which I've talked about before alongside um, discussing the rhizome. And I wrote a post a little while ago, which I thought was funny, called um, A Shroom with a View, which is all about, um, you know, rhizomatic structures and and my early forays into transhumanism and posthumanism. But the reason I've got Kay coming on is because this is, I'm very, very early on in, um, in learning about this. Like I'm, I'm coming at this like a baby basically, but I'm going to talk about a few things that kind of have, have resonated me. Um, as I'm reading, I'm a big believer in taking reading notes. I'm a big believer in, in thinking about what we read and making connections and all the rest of it. So 
I'm reading um, Mark O'Connell's uh, To Be a Machine, which again, I really recommend. Does that mean I don't have to say oof when I get up as good cyborg motivation? If so, Lucy, you are funny. That's the dream, isn't it? Uh, I'm 34 now, and I've been saying oof ever since I turned 30, to be honest with you. Constantly grunting all over the place like some sort of sweaty rhino, but less majestic and less endangered. Um, So... Mark O'Connell is not a transhumanist, but he's fascinated by why people might have those beliefs. And he said he's never had the desire to kind of live forever or to transcend his humanity. He's perfectly happy with his rubbish, floppy, you know, human body. But he said becoming a parent made him understand a little bit more why one would want to transcend one's own mortality and he wrote this and this really resonated with me he said among its many other effects becoming a parent forces you to think about the nature of the problem which is in a lot of ways the problem of nature along with all the other horrors and perversities of the broader human context the realities of aging and sickness and mortality suddenly become inescapable or they did for me at any rate and for my wife too whose existence was so much more entangled with our sons in those early months and who said something during that time that I will never forget and this is the bit for me if I had known how much I was going to love him she'd said I'm not sure I would have had him and he goes on to write the frailty is the thing The vulnerability, this infirmity, this doubtful convalescence we refer to, for want of a better term, as the human condition. And then he defines condition as an illness or other medical problem. And so this is an interesting um, thought for me because I'm a parent of a just over two year old, my little girl. Um, And before I became a parent, I mostly just floated along purposelessly just sort of existing reading things and getting on everybody's nerves um but what happened since i became a parent is that i'm aware that i'm not just one mortality anymore um i am inextricably bound up with another mortality and moreover um that mortality she's 50 percent me and so basically if anything happens to her you know, her fragility is ne- is my fragility. That's part of me. You know, I'm responsible for keeping her fragility safe. She is so small and so breakable. And it's my job to, you know, be all of the um, polystyrene and the bubble wrap that surrounds her tiny little life. I think that's enough of a reason to fear your own mortality not because you worry about you dying but you worry about them dying and you dying only in the sense that you will no longer be there for them and lucy says absolutely and it doesn't stop um and it's you know since becoming a parent it is like i've described it before it's a different kind of love i'm not trying to say that being a parent's better than not being a parent but what i will say is is that when i became a parent I became aware of a type of love that I didn't know existed. It's it's not the same as my love for my partner or my parents or anything like that, or I don't know, crisps, right, which are also brilliant. But it's a new kind of love. It's like it unlocked a previously inaccessible part of me.
and now that door won't bloody close. So for me, transhumanism is really interesting because it we do want to get rid of um, this this weakness. I think, you know, we are weak and pathetic. We've constantly got headaches. We're constantly tired. We go oof when we get up, as as Lucy says. So I had to I had to think more about this. Now, transhumanism gets weird and it gets weird quickly when you start um, looking at it, because um, basically one of the major things is um, your brain becoming code. So um, radical transhumanists um, can sign up for Alcor um, and they can have their bodies um, frozen cryogenically um, or just their heads if they're poor and by poor I mean still pretty wealthy with the idea that it will be it can be thawed and that brain or the contents of that brain and contents is a very difficult word because it implies that consciousness is solid or tangible which it isn't if it even exists, we can't even really define it. It's the hard problem in philosophy. Um, but the idea is, is that they want to find a way to download that consciousness as data and then upload it. Now, uh, this is something that um, O'Connor really, really struggles with because he believes, he says he had a very strong feeling that there was no distinction between me and my body and that I could never exist independently of the substrate on which I operated because the self was the substrate and the substrate with the self. And so this whole idea of whole brain emulation, um, he, he said it just feels impossible because it relies on seeing human nature dualistically it sees mind body separation and he says he can't see a way where his brain isn't just a part of his body um you know and he talks about when he was um you know playing with his son and um and his son smiled at him and he felt that smile with his entire body it wasn't just his brain that contains the memory of that smile it's his whole body and when he remembered that smile he said he felt his fingers tingling and this kind of rush and you could argue maybe that's just the brain filtering stuff through you know the the physical self but it's certainly not as simple as just our brains being like a computer. And, um, you know, our metaphors, um, the great Tabitha Macintosh, Macintosh has talk, uh, spoken about this um, a few weeks ago when she talks about um, educational metaphors. But um, I think what's quite clear is that our metaphors um, change with our times. You know, our brain metaphors um, are now computer metaphors but they were steam metaphors when um steam was the dominant technology and um, this is an idea from john g daugman um so it's very very complicated but at the heart of it i just want a microchip that will let me sleep but there's a there's something wider to transhumanism as well it's about um ancient ideas um o'connor notes um it's about the transmigration of souls it's a form of reincarnation. We're basically dealing with immortality here. We're basically dealing with religion. It's just a new techno religion. And um, and John Gray and uh, Mark O'Connell um, draw a comparison between transhumanism and Gnosticism and the Gnostic heretics of early Christianity, um, who amongst other things said that the human body wasn't created by God, but by an evil second order deity they called the Demiurge. 
And so we can see with the transhumanists, they almost view the human body as imperfect and irritating and an inconvenience, you know, much in the same way that many religious people see this mortal flesh as just a kind of a trial run for another age. So it's just another form of um, another form of religious experience. So it's left me so far and I haven't finished the book yet but it's really had me thinking about the nature of the brain and the nature of the future of the brain that that's what's been really important um I've been thinking about what is the brain of the future going to be like and then I've been thinking well the brain of the future is going to be educated now if the brain of the future is going to be different think differently be represented differently be placed differently will the education of the future need to be radically different and this is where post-humanism is going to come in after half past eight um some sort of post-humanist watershed that i've imposed um but this has been really interesting to think about in tandem with another book that i'm also reading called um the body keeps the score by vessel van der kolk um louise harrison mentioned this on twitter a little while ago and i grabbed a coffee of it and i've been working my throat it way through it and it's all about trauma and it's all about how the human body and mind respond to trauma and when we think about trauma um o'connell seems to be right in that the um substrate is the self and the self is the substrate because the human body physically responds to trauma when it does mentally um i've just read literally today um so i'm a little bit still piecing it together but there was a woman who was the victim of incest and she ended up losing her sight and she was seen by various doctors and it turned out that as well as being an incest survivor she had lupus um a disease where the body attacks itself but this was repeated in several incest survivors now the the, re the research around this is still um very inchoate but what is being hypothesized is that the physical body keeps the score of trauma and in fact the body of the traumatized will attack itself you know leading to diseases such as, as lupus um and that for me seems to indicate that the self might be the substrate and the substrate might be the self very very interesting um and another thing as well that came up was this idea that the brain is a cultural organ. And this has really been making me think about the nature of learning. This is another thing from The Body Keeps the Score. Experience shapes the brain. And we've got to be careful that the schooling we offer isn't traumatizing and that is taking into account the wholeness of the brain and the wholeness of the human being. And I feel like sometimes especially recently, we are limiting education to the transfer of knowledge, um, almost as if, and we see it metaphorically, almost as if human brains are computers and information needs to be um, uploaded to them. Now, I'm not saying for a second that, that it's as simple as that, or that people say it's as simple as that, but knowledge certainly is our currency at the moment. And I'd be really interested to explore with Kay very soon. Um, the different avenues we can take um, beyond knowledge-based teaching, which is currently on Vogue. Um, 
But before we do, um, and I'm hoping this next bit will tie a little bit into um, post-humanism and post-structuralism and post-modernism, um, I've started thinking about even more about this idea of the brain being a cultural organ. Now, culture, I've been thinking about when you are of a certain culture, that means that other people aren't of it. To be of something is also to be not of other things and for other people not to be of your thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a culture. If everyone was part of it, it wouldn't be a culture. It would just be existence, presumably, um, at least as far as I can see. So for, for all inclusivity, there's always going to be exclusivity. Um, so our cultural organ is very unique to the cultures in which we grow up. Now, the weird thing about culture is that we have a tendency to put culture in a hierarchy. When we talk about cultural capital, I'm more and more really struggling with that term because it implies that some cultures are better than others. You know, some cultural experiences are better than others and some people and the way that they live are superior to others, which is a very, very humanist idea you know the superiority of one culture over another and it really does chime with ideas of imperialism so that's a really easy route to prejudice especially when we don't interrogate that language and we don't interrogate um the way we talk about culture the brain being a cultural organ also means we're going to be biased towards and against um certain cultures and we are going to form um in and out groups um, the thing is as well, though, is that what we tend to do culturally is we tend to go macro. Um, and I've been reading, um, I've been reading Deleuze and Guattari on this and thinking about our obsession with, uh, binaries and Deleuze and Guattari say amongst many other things that we are segmented. Uh, they talk about, uh, man as a segmentary animal. Um, and what we tend to do is, segment the world in this very binary fashion, in this very circular fashion, in a linear fashion, and we compartmentalize life. We don't see it where it's all connected. Instead, we tend to form our little cultures, form our little ideas, and stay very rigidly um, within them. And this, again, is um, a route, potentially, that um, they didn't that engenders prejudice because we stay within that one place and we fail to see the connections we could make if we went wider. Um, and we are obsessed with the categorization of information. We're obsessed with the categorization um, of knowledge, um, of epistemology. Um, and the problem is, is that culturally speaking, if culture is a question of classification, then if we categorize our culture as superb and then we come across somebody who doesn't fit with our preconceived ideas of what our culture is, then it's very easy for us to go, well, I'm part of this culture. My culture equals superb. Therefore, the people who are not part of my culture are not superb. You very quickly can form that syllogism, that three part argument. Um, and it's a very, very easy to do, um, despite I think part of his book being um, called Into Question, uh, Daniel Kahneman in uh, Thinking Fast and Slow talks about how there are kind of two ways of thinking. There's the um, the automatic thinking we do, 
um, the fast thinking, it's instinctive, it's great when you're driving, but it's not for when you're talking about culture, because it takes shortcuts. And when our brains take shortcuts, they get lazy, and they jump to conclusions, and they utilize uh, biases and heuristics that they shouldn't really be using if they want to think about things um, fairly and equitably. So, so all of this is starting to come together. And this is where I'm going to, um, I'll go to um, an ad break and a news break really soon. And after the break, we'll bring Kate in, but just to kind of do an on-ramp. So I've been thinking about the brain of the future, about transhumanism, first of all, that's one thing. I've been thinking about the traumatized brain and the brain of the child and how it's so vital we get those childhood experiences right. It's so vital that we take care of the way we educate that brain. And one of the problems might be is that our educational system is very humanist, which means it's very compartmentalized, very segmented, and it's very much based around this idea of cultural capital and cultural superiority. Now, if Bessel van der Kolk is right, and the brain is a cultural organ, then we need to think about how that ties into the education of the future. Now, what I'm hoping then is after the break is that um, Kay can, who's been listening in the whole time and waiting very patiently, and I'm, I'm sure she's bursting with ideas. And if you haven't seen um, her um, online lecture on transhumanism, I really recommend it. It's, it blew my mind. It's so fascinating. Um, she'll be coming in. Hello, Kay. Yes, really nice to have you here. So we're going to go to a, a break, and I'm hoping that Kay will... Um, be able to shed some light on some of the things I'm talking about and maybe tell me that I'm talking utter rubbish. Right. So we're going to go um, into the uh, the ad break, the news break, and Kay will call in afterwards. So don't go anywhere. Thank you very much. This is Alex's Procrastination Station on Teachers Talk Radio. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to the Education Authority in Northern Ireland, 
18 out of 38 post-primary schools have fewer than 500 pupils and this is unsustainable. The Education Authority has placed the cost of teaching a pupil at 30 to 80% higher for a relatively small school compared to a larger school. The EA's draft plan for the next five years also highlights a need for 2,000 additional places for pupils in special schools, many of which have a shortage of places. The strategic plan for 2022 to 2027 states, while aiming to support sustainable rural provision, there are still too many small, unsustainable schools. There may be some local circumstances where provision will be necessary, but the determination of this will be subject to consultation, assessment and rationale for provision. In Nottinghamshire, there is mounting concern over a rise in children missing lessons as statistics show a 111% increase in school refusers between autumn 2020 and summer 2021. 125 pupils refused to attend school compared to 59 the previous year and there were also 157 pupils missing as a result of mental health issues a rise of 63%. Councillor Jim Creamer said, these are very high percentage numbers. It is definitely going in the wrong direction. What has gone wrong and what are we doing to address these figures? It does concern me about mental health because of COVID. There are going to be serious issues in more formative years. The National Deaf Children's Society has right, said that face everybody, masks we are returned. made reading impossible so, and cover up facial expression. Right. News went a bit weird there. Right. Okay. I'm going to ask Kate to come in uh, now. I think she just called in. I'm on a slight delay here. So, Kate, if you could just call in again and we'll see if it works. Hmm. So hopefully Kay will be able to call in in a sec. I did see it flash up really briefly a moment ago and then it disappeared. Um, just like to say hello while waiting to all 12 of our listeners. And it would be really nice to get some questions um, during the interview with Kay um, that we'll both try to answer. All right, here she is. I'm going to invite her. And Kay, Kay should Hey, hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, perfect. We're all, you can hear me, yeah? Yeah, you're a little bit muffly, but I can hear you. Yeah, move closer to the microphone. Right. Okay. So first of all then, um, by the way, I think I can hear my audio coming back through your phone. Okay, do I need to do something? Um, have you got any headphones? Yes, hold on. Yes, sorry, I should have mentioned that before. <laughs> I've got more people coming in. Loads of people have just arrived, including Corn, who I'm hoping is the new metal band. Um, 
I'm hoping that that is the band. And I can see uh, Nathan's here as well. Loads of people in today. It's got to be. It's not for me. It's, it's got to be for Kay. She is here. She's just um, gone to get some earphones because I forgot to mention about earphones. Um, the first thing I will be talking about with Kay um, when she returns is I will be asking her um, about this idea of the brain as a cultural organ and what responsibilities we have um, towards the brains of the future. But just while we're waiting, um, people in the chat, um, what do you envisage the future of education to look like? Um, what should we do as teachers that we don't do now? Um, what should schools be like? Um, what should we change? Should we keep everything the same? I'd love to keep the ideas coming. I love that Chris Vowles has said, brains of the future, shared institutional cloud drives, parsing the entrance exam secures you the account password for life that's hilarious um and pretty dystopian um i think um passing the entrance exam secures you the account password for life um so any other ideas about what the education um of the future should be like please um get in touch maybe you think that um technology should play uh, much less of a role. Um, I'd certainly probably get rid of PowerPoint. When I say get rid of PowerPoint, I would, there's gotta be a way to stop it being the industry standard. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it's everywhere in my school. Now I do use it when I feel like um, I need a presentation, but not all the time. Um, and I would say probably less than 50%. I use a visualizer a lot. I project a Word document, sometimes I write on the board, sometimes I just talk. Um, but I don't know um, how people find it um, in the chat um, currently. Ah, Kay's back. I am, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's my fault. And I'm glad you're back because I started talking about PowerPoint, which no one wants oh, to God. Yeah, I know, save <laughs> me from myself. So first of all then, um, I was talking about the brain as a cultural organ. Um do you think that we've um, we've got culture wrong um, in our society? Like, do you think we prize certain cultures over others and that influences school? You're straight in there, Alex, with the big questions. Mm -hmm. And we're after the post-human watershed, you said now, didn't you? So oh, it's okay to talk about it. you can go as mad it. as you like. <laughs> um, yeah, I think one of the things I want to say about culture is – the, the issue that we have with the split between nature and culture, I think that's a, a massive thing, certainly within um, post-human thinking and the divide that we continually set up to separate ourselves um, from nature. And I think this idea of the brain as a, a cultural organ, I think, yeah, absolutely it is, but I think it's also a natural organ. It's a material organ. It's an embodied organ. You know, you, you were talking earlier a little bit about um, the focus on the retention of knowledge and the, the kind of downloading of, of knowledge into the human brain, forgetting that we are actually part of bodies and there's also um, embodied knowledge as well. Um, and so I think we need to see the brain perhaps a little bit more holistically 
Um, and also relationally, of course, because, you know, we, we don't think alone. We, we think as part of communities, part of, um, you know, all kinds of different relationships, not just with humans, but with non-human others too. So, yeah, I hope that that kind of makes sense. Such a great answer. I've actually, um, so I've got a pen and I've got post-its. And as soon as you started talking, I thought, I'm going to need to write some of this down. Um, <laughs> partly just to remember all the things and to ask you more questions, because, when it comes to this, I am, if we're going to take 100% sure of what's going on with post-humanism, I'm less than 10%, you know. So <laughs> I've been reading some things ever since we chatted before. Um, I've been reading some things and working some things out, but um, I'm still very new to this. So you talked about embodied knowledge. Can you just explain what that is? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. You were talking earlier about machines and cyborgs and, and all of this kind of thing, the sort of, um, you know, separation of the brain as, as the kind of computer and, and all of that stuff. Um, and I think one of the, the, the questions I think for me that that raised was partly you know, who gets to be a machine. And I think post-humanism, this is deviating slightly, but I think it's interesting, um, you know, who gets to do that stuff? You mentioned yourself, the cost and, and all of those things associated with mm. being that kind of a transhuman. Um, and we've seen at the moment, haven't we, that massive kind of separation about who has the ability to to be cyborgs, to be transhuman in that kind of way from your kind of Bezos, Branson, mm. Musk, kind of phallic, um, you know, space age, all of that kind of stuff. And we're already mediated by technology. We always have been in some way or another. We're products of science and technology. That's nothing particularly new, you know, from hip joints to cochlear implants, all, all of these kind of things. But technology, of course, isn't a neutral thing. You know, it always comes with ethical um, considerations. Mm. So that's not really answering your question. But I think for most of us and, and for most humans on the planet, we are bodies um, in space and we're bodies that are subject to all kinds of inequalities. Um, and we can't forget the body, most of us, most of the time, uh, because of the way that we're, we're affected and, and treated. So I think... Um, you know, it's it's an interesting topic, but I think the ethical side of things always comes into it as well, because mm. that that return to the body, that thinking of ourselves as embodied subjects is, is key to every part of our daily lives. And, you know, if we relate it back to education, if we think about young girls in a classroom on their periods, you know, you can't deny mm. the body in the room, the body in space. So there's always kinds of embodied knowledge that are, are coming out whether people like it or not okay so this kind of so i think i'm getting a bit of a distinction between two things so if transhumanism is about the separation of the mind and body and the body almost being inferior well the body being inferior and the brain being superior and it's almost like to become immortal we need to shed the mortal tissue and keep our immortal brains right then post-humanism is actually almost the inverse of that because i'm just reminded of something from nietzsche when nietzsche talked about uh, man as being animal i fear that the animals see the human being as a being like themselves who in a most dangerous manner has lost its animal common sense as the insane animal as the laughing animal the weeping animal the unhappy animal is is that what post-humanism is getting at, that we've forgotten our our animal side 
And actually, we should be embracing the physical body more, not dualizing it. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, Alex. It's absolutely doing that. Um, And it's saying that we don't deny technology and we don't, you know, it's not about going backwards. It's not about saying these things don't exist or they shouldn't exist. It's not about that at all. It's saying it has always been a feature, I think, of what means, you know, it means to be human, right, from the bicycle to the stuff I just mentioned. Mm. Um, It's always been present. Um, But it is, it's, I mean, I think post-humanism, if it helps to define it a little bit, is is really kind of in two parts. And, And the first is a real challenge I think to humanism so the post is kind of it's coming after humanism in a way or perhaps even before humanism Um, so humanism here being a kind of power in inclusion and exclusion mechanism you know not a neutral category it's not a it's never been a neutral thing to say that someone is human because there's always been a refusal to admit so many people to that category and if you think about the image of Vitruvian man for example kind of held up as that ideal uh, figure the white western male the able-bodied buff you know all of those kind of things probably heterosexual though I don't think da Vinci was actually um but Vitruvian man is that ideal figure is inscribed everywhere um Mm. it's even on the flags of NASA on the moon um and so that ideal human has kind of resulted in the exclusion and then the horrors of things like slavery eugenics colonialism genocide you know if you look at the treatment of refugees today, if you look at, well, what happened today in Parliament, you know, all of these kind of things. Mm. So that's one side of post-humanism, this challenge of of what it means to be human um, and the question of what humans we're actually becoming. And then the second side is the thing that you just alluded to, really, um, the idea that we need to go beyond humanism, beyond the human, and become sort of post-anthropocentric, if you like. So we're a species at the end of the day and recognizing that we are actually a species that that feels a bit weird to say but Mm. um so thinking beyond ourselves is exceptional thinking beyond ourselves as having to be continually at the top of that kind of species hierarchy the pyramid that we see um decentering ourselves knowing that we're always constituted by non-humans you know we're made up of non-humans aren't we from the microbes and viruses of course at the minute you know in our bodies Mm. um and turning i think then to kind of pre-human knowledges so perhaps indigenous knowledge you know that's relational land-based um very much embodied of course and and thinking differently about who the teachers might be if you take that a little bit further what can we learn um, from non-human teachers and I'm thinking about your mushrooms um, here Alex so I... yeah so I think you you've pretty much summed it up really but I think where post-humanism differs perhaps from other philosophies is that it brings those two things together it says we need to okay. go beyond a certain view of the human and we also need to be um, a little less anthropocentric okay so would it be fair to say then that post-humanism is a bit sort of anti-transcendentalism? Because I'm I'm remembering um, Emerson wrote that man is a god in ruins. And that seems to fly in the face of what post-humanism is, because it's basically saying that we are godlike, but we are limited by our sort of mundane aspects. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a very um, a kind of post-secular philosophy in a way. Um, that isn't to say that it doesn't have elements of kind of spirituality in it, but not the kind of, you know, religiosity that, that we might recognise. Um, and I think a lot of the the kind of really interesting things I find about post-humanism are the kind of, yeah, the the focus on, on that kind of stuff, the things that we don't name. So, for example, the impact of, say, an atmosphere. And I'm thinking, again, drawing this back to education a little bit, the atmosphere within a classroom, you know, the effectiveness of, of people being together at a football match, you know, those kind of things that we can't always put names to, but we know on a level, perhaps an unconscious level sometimes, that are present and that are affecting us um, and, and changing the way we relate to others. So I think there's, there's, there is a kind of very interesting spiritual element if you want to call it that I'm never quite sure what what words to use um but certainly very much rooted in the present rooted in the here and now very materialist actually um so yeah I, that, that's kind of what I'd say on that point do you think that a big part of working out where we need to go with education in the future is linguistic and I'll explain what I mean so I've been thinking recently as as I spoke about earlier about this idea of culture and how culture includes but also excludes and as soon as you define a culture as being excellent you run the risk of biologic cultures that aren't um don't fit in um I just feel, I've lost my audio can I still be heard can somebody just check for some reason I can't hear myself at the moment Ah, have I come back? Oh, you can hear me. Right, sorry, my audio just cut out and I panicked. Thank you, Tom. Excellent. Right, so, sorry, just to go back. So, I feel like, because language has been used as a colonising tool, hasn't it? So, for example, if we, I've been reading about uh, anti-racist Shakespeare and things like that, you know, and these old ideas of whiteness being associated with superiority and purity and blackness, darkness being associated with evil um, and insidiousness and tribalism and all, and, you know, lack of sophistication. So how much, Kate, so it's a really long winded question, but how important is a reconfiguring of language to a post-human education? I think that's a really interesting question and I think we, we always need to be critical of language as you've said we always need to examine how it's used um, we need to think about you know the meaning associated and the history associated with terms and, and all that kind of thing um, I think as well we need to think about the kind of effects of language you know what language does what it produces what it does as a you know what happens as a result of the words we use um, and I think in post-humanism, one of the criticisms, actually, of post-humanism is that, you know, we come up with all these new words all the time. And post-humanism is, is one of those. If you read into it, as, as I know you have, you know, there's all kinds of neologisms, you know, mm. mumbo jumbo, to use a phrase, to sort of kind of distance ourselves sometimes. And it makes it quite inaccessible. And, and so I think there's also um, a, a claim for sort of, revisiting and, and kind of reclaiming language in a way. And interestingly, I was having this conversation yesterday with someone, we were talking about post-human education and how to sort of 
maybe come up with new words that that describe what it does or what it can do. And someone said, well, actually, um, it's it's kind of about love, and love has has been as a as a word you know it's kind of got a whole different connotation in many ways nowadays um and which isn't always a healthy one but actually if you, if you go back to love as an idea um it, it's it's ancient it's it's present it's an absolutely human thing isn't it so and, and more than human actually so i think sometimes there's a, an argument for for reclaiming language and revisiting things that have been taken on board by capitalism and kind of made into something that actually is, is very far removed from what in our heart we know is the truth. And, and a, an author like Bell Hooks would write about love and not be ashamed of using that word. So I think sometimes we drift a little bit and we try and think about language as um, being the answer to things where actually, um, you know, perhaps it isn't, perhaps we just need to recenter ourselves a little bit. Do you know, it's really interesting that you mention Bell Hooks because it's her phrase, um, ethic of love, that um, that stood out to me. So I read um, her on Love a little while ago and um, I've just found the quotation. Um, she said, um, King believed that love is ultimately the only answer to the problems facing this nation and the entire planet. Mm-hmm. I share that belief and the conviction that it is in choosing love and beginning with love as the ethical foundation for politics that we are best positioned to transform society in ways that enhance the collective good. How beautiful is that? It's beautiful. I mean, bell hooks, we, we should all read bell hooks. Um, and it's interesting, I, when I was in teacher education, um, I used to go and do teacher teaching observations all the time, as, as you do. And I, I was sat there one day filling in a very dry teaching observation form and I had this wonderful student teacher um, who was just doing the most fantastic lesson connecting in such a a beautiful way with her students Mm. and I just wanted to write the word love on the form and I Mm. thought how this doesn't fit in with the grid (laughs) the Ofsted categories you know where do I where do I write about love in this Mm. teaching observation and I actually went home and I I wrote a poem about it and the poem was written onto the form and it it became something else that I used for something else but I did share it with her Um, and of course I couldn't submit that into her portfolio for obvious reasons but you know actually why not because that was what what she was doing it was a demonstration of, of love in all kinds of ways love for her subject love for knowledge you know love of wisdom love for her students all of these kind of things mm. there was another no other real word that that I could use um so I think yeah definitely uh, revisiting this and I think critical pedagogy is is a wonderful route in actually I'm just struck by a comment um back to love as caritas the pre-medieval sense so caritas correct me if I'm wrong but that's the root of the word charity right I'm sure caritas is charity or charity <laughs> I don't know but I'll take your word for it <laughs> well this is my uh, catholic upbringing um <laughs> kicking in and I'm sure I remember some sort of ecclesiastical latin um but yes so I'm pretty sure caritas is charitable love and I'm sure I can be corrected in the uh, chat or confirmed in the chat by all the very intelligent people in here um <laughs> but is this I like that idea of of love as charity as love as a service of others love as sharing resources isn't it ah there we go elaine see elaine's a genius the greatest of these is charity corinthians boom there we go. 
that's what we're talking about elaine <laughs> you're always there when i need you right so okay so this is really lovely actually because I'm actually, as I get older, I kind of um, embrace my inner sap because I want to be spiky and postmodern and hip and ironic. But I really do believe in love. I really, really do. It's a pain, but I really believe in it. Ah, yes, caritas rather than cupiditas. Cupiditas is like sexy love, isn't it? Well, that's Eros, isn't it? Someone, but, yeah, and I think Elaine's just mentioned agape. Um, and I think one of the, mm. we have a limitation in English as well, don't we, in terms of the words that we have for love. You know, other languages have many, many different words. Um, I work with um, a friend who is from Iran and, and I help him a lot of time with sort of translation. And he'll say, how do I say this in English? And he, he has all these different terms and mm. there's only one word, you know, it's, it's like power. We only have one word for power, but there are many different types of power. Um, so I think sometimes English limits us, doesn't it as well? Maybe that's something we need to think a little bit outside the box with when we think about, you know, how we use it. Well, we're in the world of the abstract, aren't we? And I think, when we're in the world of the abstract, we're in the world of the analogies. And I've become obsessed with analogies um, ever since I started um, listening to and reading Douglas Hofstadter, who argues that analogy is the core of cognition. And ever since then, I've just become so aware that whenever we try to talk about anything, we talk analogously. And I tweeted the other day, I said that here's a definition of teaching. It's when you say to somebody, this thing that you don't know, it's like this thing you do know, but not quite. <laughs> Basically, that's teaching, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. Um, so I suppose I want to see if we can get more concrete, because I think with posthumanism, if there's one thing that frustrated me a bit when I was, because I read a paper on posthumanism in education, and I thought, brilliant, this is going to give me a vision of what the posthuman classroom will look like feel like involve and it went on very abstractly and it was really interesting but at the end it said well we don't really know and i'm hoping you can tell me a bit more than that about what you imagine the classroom or actually maybe more broadly what will the post-human educational experiences of children look like and why are they better than what we've got now yeah, it's a brilliant question and it strikes to the heart, I think, of the limitations of posthumanism um, to me because it's very heavily theorised, it's a, a philosophy, you know, it's a lens to read the world through, but I think as you found and, and as I found... You've got a bit quiet there, Kay that question actually you know what does this actually feel like what does it look like how can we actually put these ideas to work and I think the first point I want to say because normally when I talk about this stuff people particularly sort of on the traditionalist side of education you know um, I get critiques about progressivism and all of that kind of thing um, and I want to sort of just separate education and schooling because I think we conflate those two things so much and if we're talking about post-human education firstly we probably look need to look beyond the idea of the school as we know it um, and that is a process I think for all of us of what I'd call sort of defamiliarization because we're so rooted in what we think education is, what we think schooling is, what it looks like, because we've experienced it, you know, it's rooted in our psyche, it's very deep within our psyche. And so I think we have to start to 
um, yeah, defamiliar ourselves, move a little way from that kind of hegemonic idea. This is uh, what education is all about. And that's really hard, actually. Perhaps that's where your mushrooms come in because we, mm. we find it very difficult to, to imagine something different. Um, so when I finished my PhD, I came up with a few ideas, a few concepts, I suppose, which maybe bring these things to life a little, bo- a little bit more. And okay. the first one, I think, related very much to your mushroom piece, actually, about education as being rhizomatic and, and acknowledging that education just doesn't sit within the limitations and the boundaries of, of a classroom. So for me, post-human education has to be open. It has to be something that moves outwards and that has different entry and exit points um and these things might be you know through all kinds of different spaces acknowledging that learning happens as we all know uh, not just within um, a classroom but within you know it, all kinds of interesting places and I actually did a little experiment with my students um not so long ago where we went outside and we were thinking about learning as a, a situated activity and they were talking about um, experiences they have on the bus or in the smoking area and, and all of these kind of things. So blurring those boundaries, I think, perhaps uh, is, is part of it. But also recognising that we're part of all kinds of multiplicities, you know, all kinds of different assemblages of people that learn within all kinds of different habitats. So that mushroom, that rhizomatic lens, I think, is really helpful. That That's kind of the first thing that I would say. Um The second one is thinking, I guess, a little bit differently about subjects. And we talk about this a lot, don't we? Sort of inquiry-based learning, learning that cuts across silos. I'm really interested in this idea of kind of um, transpositions and connecting subjects together, you know, as they might be in the real world. So one of the exercises I get to do, uh, I get students to do, is to think about what might happen if someone was moving from a music lesson to a geography lesson, say, um, and transposing those subjects together? You know, what does that look like if geography is entering into music and music's entering in geography and all of these kind of things, Um, which sounds a little bit wacky, I know, but it's it's really addressing the, the complex nature of our times in a way by saying, actually, you know, there's a role in our learning for um, not just breaking down those silos, but also thinking about our own heritage, our history, our memories, our shared traditions, and how those are actually part of, you know, the education process. Um So diffraction is the word I like to use. Again, you know, getting a little bit abstract there, but kind of diffracting things through other things. And that might be by breaking down, I think, those whole subject boundaries. Mm. Um, The the third thing I think is a a feature, I guess, of kind of what post-human education might look like is this idea of, of kind of being a bit fugitive. And what I mean by that is, And we all know it, I think, as teachers, when we divert for some reason from planned learning pathways. So learning, it tends to be such a linear thing, doesn't it? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that because we have to for all kinds of reasons. But within that, we we still divert. We divert all the time. Oh, I do it all um, the time. 
Yeah, absolutely. Something comes up, someone says something, something happens, and then we move from one space to another. And it's a very natural process, I think. We don't always even notice that it's happening. So I think part of it is raising that awareness and saying, actually, what's happening here? Why why have we moved into this space? Um, Acknowledging that. And, and thinking about what that does, you know, what that produces, perhaps almost as a, a form of resistance sometimes, um, but disrupting, it disrupts the system in some way, even if we have to return back, you know, to how things were. And sorry, I'm go- banging on a little bit more, but I've just got two other very short points. No, please do. I'm going to ask you some questions afterwards. Okay, so the next one is, is thinking about um, education as a minor practice. And that's going back to that idea of the human as this kind of standard um, white male Western form and thinking, actually, how do we move to the boundaries of that and think about difference? So difference, not as in, you know, we need to include people in something that's already been created and set up. We need to put them in that box in, in some way, but appreciating difference actually for itself and in in and of itself so rather than as deficit but you know as a a bonus and that might be moving away from sort of normative teaching moving towards uh, the differences that we have in the classroom thinking about elevating those things uh, thinking about central roles for things like neurodiversity and, and so on what might that look like if we move to the edges rather than bringing things you know, continuously to the centre. And and the last feature, I think, for post-human education is very much around creativity. So art as a practice of freedom, but not within just one subject, but going and cutting across uh, the whole curriculum through kind of pedagogic experiments that have artistic responses, um, you know, relational ones that are done together, collaborative things, um, and that then create kind of something new. So rather than replicating what's gone before, what can we create uh, that's new um, as part of that? So, yeah, wow. those, were, those are just my ideas. <laughs> no, of course. And there's so much going on here. And the thing is, is that I'm trying to get my head around all these different approaches to education that I see on Twitter. And the amount of times I see someone saying, well, obviously it's not that. How could you even say it's like that? There are a few things, and I've also done a bit of work with the Chartered College of Teaching as well, and there was something you said earlier on that really seemed to, and it might not, but it seemed to clash with something that seemed to be rather almost considered axiomatic nowadays. Um, and it goes back to this idea of, and I'm going through about a million post-it notes I've been scribbling away. Um, where is it? All right. There was one you said about... Ah, yes, it was to do with subjects. And you were talking about them being less siloed. Now, things like project-based learning and cross-curricular stuff, rather frowned upon now, isn't it? And um, rather ridiculed a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I I very rarely mention it on Twitter because I normally get (laughs) shouted down. Absolutely. But what it does seem... So I remember when I was working, uh, doing some work for the Chartered College, and I came across a lecture from Daisy Christodoulou. And she said that knowledge and skills are domain specific, which is why we have so many problems with educational progress in England, because we have taught for ages that skills and knowledge are 
transferable things. If you can do it in one, you can do it in another. And she said, actually, the evidence points to the fact that they're domain specific. First of all, do you think she's right? Secondly, what consequences does that have for a less siloed approach to subjects? And what would a curriculum, therefore, so three questions from that look like? Yeah, I think it's an, an interesting question. Um, and I think it kind of brings us back a little bit to the whole thing about the purpose of education, doesn't it, in a way, mm. you know, as these questions often do. Um, you know, if the purpose is still to achieve a certain amount of knowledge for, you know, the purpose of a standardised test, then, of, of course, you're going to design a system around that. And, and I'm not saying that you know, we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we are also within the system we've got now. And I think one of the interesting things with some of the post-human ideas and that I want to build upon are the things that you can still do within the system, you know, mm. because we're not in a utopia and we're not going to move away from things anytime soon. So I think, you know, there's always room for, you know, as as Bell Hooks would say, classroom, you know, the classroom is always a, a space of possibility. So there's always things that we can do. But um, I think in terms of knowledge, and I think what I don't want to say is that a kind of cross-disciplinary, transdisciplinary kind of curriculum would do away with knowledge because it, it absolutely wouldn't do that. It just produces something differently, I think. And I just want to mention um, XP school, um, if people are familiar with XP um, in Doncaster and also in Gateshead now, XP School have moved to an entirely uh, inquiry-based learning curriculum, expeditionary learning, and they do some really interesting things. One of their modules, I think it's a year eight module, is called What Does It Mean to Be Human? And within that whole project, if you like, they're bringing in all those different domains of knowledge. So there'll be um, English in there, obviously, there'll be science, there'll be some probably some philosophy and ethics, there'll be mm. uh, religious education and all of that. And it cuts right across, but it, it centers around something quite different. And I think those kind of things, that is what I would call a, a post-human way of viewing things. And, you know, I'm within the university system, which again is very much siloed, you know, it's all about disciplines. Um, but I think we can still work in an interdisciplinary way. And that's, that's what I try and do in my own teaching. So, you know, I teach education studies, childhood studies, but there's always fiction, there's always yeah. Um, media in there there's sometimes geography you know maybe a bit of science even so I think there's always uh, yeah there's always ways that you can do this even without completely breaking out of the whole thing do you know it's really nice to hear you talking about these and I'm just going to go to Toby um, he says it's only frowned upon because the exam driven system is so narrow and measured and PBL is inefficient for our system mm. and I think that makes a lot of sense he's a very very sensible man is uh, Toby yeah. Um, and his show's on later as well, everybody. So make sure you tune in to um, the inimitable uh, Toby Payne Cook and the ukulele man as well. <laughs> now, just plugging his show. But but what's quite nice about this is that, um, like, I'll take my year eight lesson um, yesterday. So we were talking about... You're welcome, dear. Um, so... Um, we were talking about um, analogies and about um, how to use an analogy when you're telling an anecdote and why we would tell an anecdote. And it's about, you know, how we fictionalize the true 
and therefore how truth is subjective and that sort of thing. And we ended up talking about the nature of reality and I think particle physics or something. And and it was this <laughs> wonderful thing and they were so engaged. And I was thinking, and then a little part of my brain kicked in going, you're so far away from the scheme of work now, Alex, come on. Will you go back to the scheme of work? But yeah, yeah, but yes, eight were going, yeah, but what about this? And they were throwing around terms like subje- um, subjectivity and cognition. And they were going, yeah, but you can't know if that's real. So yes, I can. So I don't know if that table's real. And it was like, we're not in the matrix. And it's like the year eight. And it was, <laughs> and it was just so wonderful. And they learned so much. I learned so much. And it was so generative with my mm. year 12s. We were talking out tests of the D'Urbervilles, but then we applied cyborg theory. And then we talked about, you know, whether Hardy um, had modernist tendencies and what consequences that would have and why he doesn't fit into either category and how we've just made the categories up anyway. And it was just generative and fun. And it's the times I have the most fun in the job. The times mm-hmm. I don't have fun are when... I do what Toby talks about, the the narrow driven thing. Because if I may, um, when I learn, and I learn all the time, I'm an autodidact, um, but I'm constantly thinking about um, cross-disciplinary things. So what have I looked at recently? Bell hooks, trauma, transhumanism, mm. post-humanism, post-modernism, cyborg theory, um, writing fiction, you know, economics i've looked at a little bit recently but they all do tie in they all do link you know love feminism i've looked at as well and that's that's what i would call a kind of diffraction you know you're reading Mm. things through other things that's what i think we do quite naturally you know we don't silo things off in our our brains do we we might read a bit of poetry and relate Mm. it to you know something else that's happened that day or we you know we as you just said you all kinds of different books or different texts or different ideas come to us or even the reality of what we're living through what we're seeing in the news today what we're watching in pmqs and we relate those things together and i think that's what our systems you know don't do enough of or don't allow for it happens um, and we we notice it and we think oh yeah this is great because it's new it's it's generating something new it's not overcoding and replicating the, the knowledge of the past it's bringing something new into the world um and yeah that's that is absolutely what i think we do need to do more of and it's tremendous fun into the bargain and i mm. really do think by the way and i think a lot of people would disagree with me i think education should be fun and i don't mean entertaining i mean like i just sometimes say to my students my students go we're gonna have a fun lesson and i say well i will you know i'm gonna be having a <laughs> whale of a time at the front okay whether you do or not that's on you you know but i'm going to be having a tremendous amount of fun talking about all this stuff and asking you questions you want to get involved brilliant oh virginia wolf wrote an essay called the narrow bridge of art we are looking at trying to move away from the narrow bridge education Mm. that's going on my list i've never read it um but that's a really fascinating one thank you um i appreciate that um so I'll make sure to add that to my reading list. I was going to ask you another question um, about something else. And I'm just going to read back through my notes because I have literally got like 15 post-it notes now that I've written on. <laughs> um, and I never usually take notes like this when I'm interviewing people, but you've said so many things. Um, right. No, that one's about love. Um, right. So. All right. Because we're getting, um, yeah, we're not far from the end of the show, actually. We've only got 20 minutes left. And I could have done another ad break, and I'm not going to because I'm too interested in this. All right. (laughs) So let's think about first steps. 
like if we're gonna have a shift towards um a more post-human education slash schooling what are the first things we need to do to move away and i'm going to just add something else in because i would argue that we are moving further and further towards schooling and away mm. from education happening outside the school actually trying to get kids to do homework really difficult um i get the impression that a lot of parents don't really like educating their kids or well, not even that or aren't really able to or don't necessarily have the time um the school is where you do the learning how do we dissenter yeah that's a great question um and i think just off the top of my head one of the first things it's helpful to think about is just the practice of noticing the things that we do that, that maybe bring us towards this point. So your point, Alex, just then about um, that diffractive way of thinking and the what I would call, this is a Deleuze and Guattari thing, but a line of flights. So when you're in a lesson and you're deviating from the lesson plan and there's this exciting atmosphere and all of that, um, that's what they would call a line of flight. You're taking a departure from the status quo. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to have to return to the status quo because you're going to have to. But something's happening, something shuffles just within you doing that. Something has changed probably for you and for the kids that will never, you know, never come again or will alter them in some way. And I think we have to notice those moments, first of all. We have to elevate them to our consciousness. We have to reflect on them, you know, share them with, with others and kind of, you know, accept that that's happening. And I think also related to that kind of idea of noticing, and I'm going to go back to the word affect here, which is more about, you know, understanding ourselves as embodied beings in relation with each other, is to pick up on things like, and this maybe sounds a little bit um, like I'm de deviating, but noticing things like an atmosphere, you know, noticing when there's energy, noticing when things is happening within the classroom. And I, I often say, to students, you know, who hasn't walked into a room and felt an atmosphere, who hasn't noticed the impact of being in a particular space and what that does, or having a particular group of people together, you know, thinking about the atmospheres and the memories and the transition experience that people bring into the room with them and that, what that does. So bringing us a little bit back to the material. So I think those two things those practices of noticing and defamiliarizing ourselves a little bit. I think they're helpful in the first instance. Um, and one of the things I've been working on, I can't imagine a lot of teachers, are, well, no, I may be doing myself a disservice here. I'm working on some kind of what I would call CPD um, mm -hmm. in the loosest sense <laughs> for educators, which is around these kind of post-human ideas. And one of the things that we do um, as part of those activities, again, not your classic CPD by any stretch is something like going outside and looking at or finding a rhizomatic system like fungi or looking at root systems or something like that and thinking about education differently in terms of not as a linear process but how can we relate what we're seeing in the natural world to the, the way that we might educate and those kind of things, I think, just reposition ourselves a little bit, you know, re start to shift us out of those typical structures that we're so embedded in. And then we can start to perhaps see different things. So really 
baby steps, you know, just kind of that first process of thinking rather than jumping in and saying, right, we're going to get rid of subjects. You know, what can we do first of all, just to start moving ourselves along the path? Right. No, that does make sense. That does make sense. I suppose the real tension is that we want to think rhizomatically. And yet, as Toby alluded to, everything about our educational system is so linear and unidirectional, isn't it? Um, Do you think we need to get rid of that kind of terminal nature? So those terminal exams, are they more trouble than they're worth in terms of that linearity? I think, again, you know, we're always part of the systems that we resist in some way. Um, In a utopia, yes, uh, but again, probably not in my lifetime. So, you know, how do we work within that, I think, is is an important thing to think about. I was thinking in relation to Toby's point about um, the emphasis on cognitive science, you know, obviously, cognitive load theory, the absolute buzzword of the day and all of these things. And as you mentioned earlier, that the way that it kind of has that Cartesian binary, it splits the brain from the body and and all of those things. Um, And it's something that I I try and resist a little bit as a practice, but then actually, if you've got a system that's entirely built around knowing and retaining and regurgitating stuff, of course you're going to have cognitive science as a kind of key um, pedagogy. So again, I think, yeah, Ideally, we would we would do things very differently. But then we're in a system that isn't just about education. It's not just about school. We're in a system of neoliberalism, capitalism that ranks and and rates and marketizes and all of that. Um, and you know, before you know it, you're talking about bringing down the whole of that system as well. If you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, I think we, we do what we can, perhaps with a view to little shifts that eventually maybe make a, a big shift. And I think, I suppose then, the the first thing we can do is embrace that ethic of love, right, that Bell Hooks talks yeah. about, right? That's yeah. the first thing we can do, I suppose, introducing, I'm just trying to think about next steps and I'm trying to think about, because we always want a takeaway, don't we? Whenever I've led training or anything, people always say, these are always great ideas, Alex, but what are we going to go and do? I was like, I yeah. don't know, I'll just read stuff. But the um, but the point is, I suppose, that the thing we can do tomorrow in our lessons is focus more on the love and the atmosphere and the generative thought in the room rather than I must get to this point on the roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as, as Lucy's just said, you know, exam pressures, it's really hard to deviate. Mm. Um, and it it is, and I'm, I'm not saying we, we can do that, but I think you're right. I think there's something about reclaiming the stuff that we've always known. So love is is a great concept, a great word for doing that because everyone knows how it feels. Everyone knows what it means. So that process of noticing, um, of recognizing, um, of of sharing actually as an act of resistance in itself, sharing those moments rather than the results, you know, thinking about the process and what's going on in the process, those moments of joy. Um, Spinoza, I don't know if you're into Spinoza yet, Alex, we'll probably get you into Spinoza. Not yet. But is a, on the no, side. well, you'd love Spinoza, a key philosopher in terms of post-human thinking, obviously very ancient, you know, around a very long time yeah. ago, but his thinking was very much in line with this idea of an ethic of joy. 
an affirmation, so affirmative ethics that thinks about power not as kind of hierarchical, not as organisational, but power as kind of nomadic that that spreads out through those conversations that we might have with educators or, you know, in all kinds of different places. Um, so things that, yeah, that aren't bound up within the, the typical structures that we find ourselves in, connecting with people who we can have those conversations with, um, sharing those joyful moments, those affirmative moments and thinking about what changes as a result, you know, what those things do. And I think that's something that actually we, we do see a lot of, you know, even on Twitter conversations about joy and hope and um, and change and things that are really exciting that are happening in the classroom. So focusing on, in on that stuff, you know, the real meaningful stuff, I think is a, a really good place to start. Well, that's what we actually want, isn't it? We're almost just afraid of making it that simple aren't we because mm. what's interesting is i started this conversation going right i need to be awake for this because this is going to be hard it's actually probably the most simplest philosophy i've ever yeah. come across because it's basically yeah. about for, ironically i think for something that calls itself post-humanism it's actually more humanistic than humanism if that makes sense because it's more <laughs> inclusive of all humans and then yes. some. It's not exclusionary. And that's the huge irony that kind of opened my eyes. As soon as I looked into humanism and enlightenment ideals, I thought humanism just means not humanism. It's really, really strange yeah. what language yeah. does. It's a slippery beggar, isn't it? It really is. And I think like you're right in that it's really simple. That's what I love about it. And I think that focus on what kind of humans are we becoming? That's a question we ask a lot within the philosophy. You know, what what kind of humans do we want to be? You know, do we want to be those humans that centre love and centre difference, you know, that um, don't talk about inclusion, but including people to a table that's already been set out, you know, that move towards difference as generative and not deficit. It, those are the kind of humans that we want to be. How do we make those things happen? And also, of course, the other side of it, moving towards the more than human, you know, the non-humans um, within all of this and thinking about Another project I'm looking at at the moment is this idea of more than human teachers. You know, what can we learn from educators who are not human? And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but what can we learn from the way that elephants are, are intergenerational in the way they care for each other? What can we learn from the way that dolphins echolocate? in the same way that we do on social media, you know, what does that tell us? What do mm -hmm. fungi tell us in the way that they um, connect in so, so many disparate ways to all kinds of interesting other things? Um, so I think looking to the non-human, I think, is a really important element of this, as well as that elevation of all humans, yeah. Right, brilliant. And, you know, I've kind of had a little bit of a theory cooking that's related to this, because you just mentioned what kind of humans are we becoming? And I think mm. the kind of humans we're becoming is employees. So, and it kind of goes back. I remember reading um, last night, I was kind of researching a bit about the history of education. And I stumbled across um, Adam Smith. Um, I haven't come across Adam Smith for a while, but I came across this. Um, Adam Smith um, advanced the revolutionary belief that governments had an obligation to provide education to workers, but it sprung from the hope that education could combat the deleterious effects of factory life. So it was a way of kind of taming the, the working class. And so education is associated with 
employees. But what's interesting now is that all of these drives towards qualifications and these linear pathways and what's your next step and educated to 18 and one size fits all is it's all about students being future employees, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely is. I mean, I've taught employability to my shame, you know, <laughs> for many years. But there's this real intermingling, I think, of kind of state interests and interests of capital. Um, you know, you've only got to look at certainly higher education now. The driver for um, success within universities is all around graduate employment. That's the focus. Um, but not just any employment, a certain you know grade of earnings mm. um so we're completely removing the love of learning from from higher education at the moment and of course it cuts right through the, the heart of the system so yes i think that's a real issue and i think one of the things we really need to reclaim i think as part of this we've not touched on sort of adult education but you know when you look at what on earth has happened to adult education broadening our education um beyond you know that framework of schooling and he um i think that's that's a real issue that, that's coming down the line certain when we we think about issues around the rise of populism and fake news and, and what people are learning and where they're learning it so yeah i think employability everything around um class of course as well bound up in that i think is a real problem and I think that we've kind of fetishized work a bit, haven't we? You know, the idea, and maybe this is a bit more of an English thing, but in in England especially, I, and I can only talk about England being English, but I feel like we're really, like, ashamed of not wanting to work. Like, we feel like we have to, like, shove ourselves through. Elaine says uh, education is stuck in a Victorian um, mm. paradigm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Toby says that his dad was employed for two years. 24 years of employment is enough, frankly. And it was that that made me think, uh, you know, mm. why are we so obsessed with working ourselves to the ground? Teachers, I know I said that well-being is, I believe that well-being is a structural problem and telling teachers to go and make cakes and do yoga is going to do the sum total of sod all to make anything better because it's a structural problem. But and I'm prepared to argue about this on Twitter with anyone, fight me. But um, I think it's interesting that we, we, don't, we don't think of ourselves as worthy of stopping. We presume that all of our value comes from hard work. And by hard work, we just mean loads of work, don't we? Yeah. It's like, why does that the thing that gives us purpose increasingly i'm trying to work less and less and less and less because what i want to be doing is playing with my daughter learning to play the guitar reading loads of stuff talking to really clever people like you about really cool things and like i don't want to be sitting there doing my job i don't know and i think we're teaching we sell ourselves the idea that we need to be martyrs on the um you know on the sacrificial plinth of mm. other people's lives almost and I really don't see why that has to be the paradigm. Do you, do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. We, we see this all the time, you know, and then people say, this is how it was for me, so that's how it has to be for you. Um, and we, we forget that society hasn't always been like this. I mean, I'm 
very interested, as, as I've said before, in indigenous cultures and thinking mm. about the way in which their, their, their time was spent, very little in terms of what we might call working kind of activities, a huge amount of leisure. Um, but we even use leisure as a bit of a, a dirty word, don't we? We set up this binary be between mm. the two things. Um, you know, things we say, like I'm universal. being naughty, don't we? We say, I'm being naughty. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I was lazy yesterday. Oh, I slobbed around all day. Exactly, we relaxing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, we should be moving to much more of that. But I think there is this, mar and I think there's quite an English thing, I think, as you said as well, around this martyr-type re relationship and this kind of re relating, not to get too political, but in this way that we kind of almost venerate the elite and, and believe that we, we have to be oppressed by them in some way and go out and do those those. 60 hour a week jobs um so i think it's again it's another psyche thing that we have to try and get past and i, I love what you're doing alex in terms of resisting that um <laughs> i think if we can all bring that on as a, as a bit of a practice in the day-to-day -day, that would be a good thing one of the reasons i think i stopped blogging about education is i realized that i wanted to write and i've always written and I, my degree is in creative writing in English, but I needed something to write about, like to make myself do it. And and I remember thinking, I just need to document my life. And at that time, my life was just teaching. And mm. I just got sick of it. And I just thought, why can't I write any more blogs about education? And I thought, because I'm doing it all bloody day. And <laughs> everyone else is saying things already. And I just thought, what do I want to write about? And I got a bit depressed and I basically wrote about that and I wrote about how I was feeling and I ended up, I mean, I know you've read a few of my pieces. They just, they just go where they want to go. They, mm. they're rhizomatic. And, yeah. and I, and I have found, and um, people who followed me on Twitter for a while will know about my ups and downs with mental health and all the rest of it, but embracing that rhizomatic way of thinking and expressing myself and finding my own language and being generative and all of the things we've been talking out today um have really helped me um become clear-headed and feel more fulfilled um yeah. and sometimes that means and i'm going to paraphrase um lucy here who's always got such wonderful turns of phrase i'm magnificently lazy <laughs> and i think that is a real magnificence and thank you elaine elaine and lucy um and Toby up there and there's a few other people in here always read my witterings and it's and it's so so lovely and they're so supportive so thank you all so much but yeah just to kind of wrap up then so this has made me feel super positive and actually that some of the things I was already thinking were, are a bit post-human and some of the mm. things I'm already doing are a bit post-human and it's made me feel a little bit less like I'm doing it wrong if that makes sense so I yeah. want to just say thank you so much for that. You're welcome. It's a wonderful, positive philosophy. It really is. It's transformed my life, my attitudes towards education. Um, I think our curriculum, our pedagogy, it's already post-human if we only want to recognise it, if we only want to see it, see the things that are important um, and elevate those. And, yeah, I think... Spinoza, joy, affirmation, affirmative ethics, living ethically, a different kind of ethical life and thinking what we're becoming. Those are really great conversations to have, actually. And they can, in the depths of all our 
current despair you know I think that's that's really what we need and I think that's what people have a thirst for actually as well when I look on Twitter and some of the debates I think there's a real there's bigger questions underlying this very deep philosophical questions that teachers want to think about and one of the things I want to do going forward is to give people the space to actually have those conversations not just the superficial stuff but digging into the things that they that underlie them, like what is a child, what is education for? You know, these are the, the kind of things we should be talking about. And we should be magnificently lazy as well at the same time. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, okay, I wish we could carry on for another hour, um, but you have just ended the show on the most pithy note. Um, so I don't even need to do an <laughs> outro now. So the final words belong to you. You've been a magnificent guest. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Um, please catch up with me at Curtain Sleep. And Kay, your Twitter handle is uh, KaySockLearn, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah. So please catch up with us on Twitter. Um, I'm going to share some links. Um, please share some links as well, Kay. Um, we're out yep. of time. Thank you so much again. I look forward to talking with you soon. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much, Kay. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.